My name is Jared Ortiz. I teach Catholic theology in the religion department. And I'm the director of the St. Benedict Institute. Some of you may have noticed that we have upgraded from a forum to an institute. Uh, we recently changed the name to reflect the growth of our organization, St. Benedict Forum 2.0. For those of you who don't know, the St. Benedict Now Institute is the Catholic campus ministry that serves Hope College. Founded by Catholic scholars at Hope, we are a ministry of the local Catholic Church, St. Francis de Sales. And our mission is to offer intellectual and spiritual formation from a distinctly Catholic perspective and to engage our Protestant friends in ecumenical dialogue and the building of a Christian culture. We are very pleased to bring James Matthew Wilson to Hope College today, and I'd like to thank all of our friends and co-sponsors in the Religion Department and the English Department who made this event possible. James Matthew Wilson is Associate Professor of Religion and Literature in the Department of Humanities and Augustinian Traditions at Villanova University. A much-loved teacher who teaches the children of Hope College philosophy professors, among others. <laughs> Dr. Wilson is an insightful commentator on politics and culture, a poet, and a critic of poetry. He has published six books, including, most recently, The Major Critical Study, The Fortunes of Poetry in an Age of Unmaking, a collection of poems, some permanent things, and a monograph, The Catholic Imagination, in modern American poetry, and some of his books are on sale in the back, and he's very happy to sign them after the event. He has a new book coming out with Catholic University Press, The Vision of the Soul, Truth, Goodness, and Beauty in the Western Tradition. This afternoon, Dr. Wilson will speak on Art is a Jealous God, Aesthetic Autonomy, and the claims of the divine. Please help me welcome James Matthew Wilson. It's such a pleasure to be here. I want to thank everybody, um, first of all, who made this possible, and those of you who came uh, on a, it is Wednesday, right? On a Wednesday evening. It's such a pleasure to have you. Um, I have four children. Weeknights, weekdays no longer matter. It's just, <laughs> um, uh, it's so great to be here. It's, it's a pleasure to be here at Hope, uh, and only as Jared was talking about the, my recent um, books do I realize in a particular way how special it is, because it occurs to me that, that, um, that two of those last three books were written just a few miles from here uh, at my in-law's uh, vineyard estate. Uh, and so, um, and so, it's nice to come back here and to be where a lot of hard work was done uh, in between a lot of fun. So, my uh, title tonight, um, how should I put it? There was a movie years ago where a bartender um, would be dispense advice to the local college kids, and he would always stop and he'd say, "I'm paraphrasing myself here." 
but and then he dispense his wisdom so he was sort of quoting himself to his own <laughs> to, 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 to testify to his own wisdom well i'm quoting myself with the the, the lecture topic this night um art is a jealous god years ago um i reviewed published a review of a book of poetry uh by a, a catholic poet who was trying to use all of the available techniques of, of modern and postmodern poetry, lots of surreal elements and so on and so forth. And it was clear that the effort was to drive home, her intention was to drive home the reality of Christ's incarnation. And for all the uh, ingenuity of her efforts, and I remember distinctly there was this one particular poem that sp spoke of, of you know, Christ taking flesh, hi David, uh, like, like a... Um, like a hand fitting into a, a surgeon's glove. For as clever as it all was, um, it's, it didn't seem quite right. It just didn't work. And the feeling I had as I went through poem after poem was that this woman was trying to worship two gods. She was trying to write a devotional poetry that manifested the reality of her faith and of her uh, understanding of who God was. And she was trying also to, uh, to draw on whatever resources she could from uh, the available poetic conventions to make a good poem. And in every instance, it seemed that one was giving. Either one God or the other was being worthily treated, but never both. And so in my review, I wrote that you know, art, too, is a jealous god, and it does take its revenge um, if you don't worship it. And the more I considered this phenomenon, what is it that should make art a jealous god, the more I, I came to reflect on um, just the, the nature of our modern understanding uh, of aesthetics, the modern theory, modern philosophy of art and the nature of art. So uh, after a number of years, I, I thought it was time to sit down and actually try to think through what, it, what I had said so briefly and somewhat elliptically and maybe even a bit pretentiously in this review years ago. And so I, I went to uh, first to Immanuel Kant's The Third Critique, which is such a you know, cornerstone for modern aesthetic theory. And, and there I found something helpful. What we find in Kant is an account of the two ways in which our, uh, our age, our culture, our world has been secularized. The first way, or the first mode of secularization is the classical one, the one that you would find familiar. The idea of, th of secularity as um, a thinking that pertains only to this world, that doesn't look beyond the horizon of, a, of roughly 100 years, so a siècle, um, and that therefore has a necessarily limited, more imminent perspective. When I thought back on this book of poems, I thought this is one way in which the book was being confronted with some difficulties. It was trying to make us think, to make real for us in this world, um, the, the infinite transcendence of God. And so one of the obstacles that this woman had to confront as a poet was figuring out how she could uh, 
make appear as something of real concern to a secular culture, a, a this world culture, um, uh, a reality that was so present for her, but that infinitely transcended what many people consider reality. But when I turn to Kant uh, a little more closely, I find that he's also the father of another kind of secularity, one that's been usefully explored by the, uh, the French uh, philosopher of science, uh, oh, what is his name? Bruno Latour. Latour, in a book called We Have Never Been Modern, argues that the modern world claims to be secular in the sense of putting everything in its own neat um, uh, quarantined area. So an example of this that just springs to mind is I remember many years ago uh, the um, paleontologist and uh, evolutionary theorist Stephen Jay Gould said that, um, that science and religion have, uh, what, what is it, non-intersecting exclusive magisteria. Well, however foolish that statement may have been in some ways, it captures something about our secular age. That is to say, we tend to put things into their own isolated uh, parts uh, of the world and expect them to function smoothly and autonomously there. Politics is here, religion is there, literature is here, you know, your private life's there, your public life's here, so on and so forth. So, uh, so as I as I thought about that, I thought this is a pretty good clue as to the kind of jealous god that art has become in the modern world. If we were to see a work of art, for instance, deployed as propaganda, we would very likely say somehow the autonomy of that art as an artwork has been violated because it's been put to some kind of political use. And this would be a a typical example of that second mode of secularity, where we want everything to stay in its little box. Art, however, is an especially jealous god. Because while we like our pharmacists to be pharmacists and our politicians to be uh, politicians, with art, when it's the little box into which it's been put, is supposed to be something distinctive. It's supposed to be that one place where our spirits, our minds, our emotions, you can choose your term, are allowed to sort of enter into a kind of free play a kind of free contemplation. And it was when I began to work through this kind of thinking that Immanuel Kant became incredibly helpful because he says precisely this in his treatise on aesthetic theory, the the first half of his, his third critique, the critique of judgment. What Kant tells us is the following. When we encounter something beautiful, what we're calling beautiful is not something out in the world. The term we use, what we're actually describing when we call something beautiful, is the presentation of that thing to the world to ourselves. And so what we're really describing is a particular experience we have within our subjectivity rather than a particular property of something out in the world. When we encounter something beautiful, he says, two things happen. Our mind, which normally according to Kant, looks out to the world and seeks to determine, that is to say, to name, to project ideas or definitions onto things, our mind experiences a kind of 
formal intelligibility. It feels like it's arriving, moving towards truth, but that truth never gets determined. So it's, uh, I, I don't really watch uh, cable television, but I know some people used to watch the Stephen the Colbert report. They always hear about truthiness. So for Kant, art is a little bit about truthiness. It's like truth, but you don't actually get any truth. Um, but something else happens. Art feels as if it's purposed. It feels as if it's intended to do something. But it doesn't do anything. And so a phrase that will long live in infamy, I, I, I don't know what the original German is, but Kant tells us that art is purposiveness without purpose. So if we have truthiness in art, we also have goodiness, as in it's good for s nothing. <laughs> um, and this, he says, is actually the beauty of art. It's a movement toward truth without truth, a movement toward goodness without any particular moral claim or moral injunction upon us. It falls between the two stools of truth and goodness, beauty does. Well, why would we want something that's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, or really neither of this and neither of that? Well, it tells us actually, not only do we want it, but it's probably, the, ex the encounter with beauty is probably what most fully reminds us of our humanity. When we encounter the beautiful, he tells us, our subjective faculties, our power of imagination and reason and understanding, they come into a free and harmonious play so that by the encounter with some beautiful thing, we actually discover ourselves as spiritually free beings. Not, that is to say, mere material beings determined by Newton's physics, contrary in the 18th century, but rather genuinely spiritually free beings. And so this art has to be autonomous because art seems to be the one place in Kant's Germany where you're actually free, where you actually experience yourself as more than a product of the physical forces of nature. No wonder then that art becomes for us such a jealous god. If we feel art having designs upon us, it feels like it's pulling us into the realm of morality when we wanted spiritual freedom. If we feel like art's trying to teach us something, then we feel like it's pulling us in to the world of rational cogitations just when we wanted to stand back and contemplate. Kant was fighting for our identity as free human beings, but at a great cost. In the process of his thinking through of beauty, he renders it subjective, so it's something that's in you, not really part of the world. It has an intelligible content related to truth, but it's not quite truth. It has something like moral content, but it's not really moral content. It's sort of a neither nor that, again, reminds us of our spiritual freedom, but freedom for what? And that can't be answered within the domain of the aesthetic. Because if you said freedom for something, then you'd be back in the realm of morality. And so it becomes an ever smaller little acreage of jealously guarded freedom, the world of art does. Well, this poses immense problems. Philosophically, it poses problems for us. Because when we encounter the beautiful, we usually do feel, as Kant says, pulled towards truth and goodness as well. And also, when I call my wife beautiful, I'm not telling, speaking about anything in me. I'm talking about her. And so what Kant has given us is an account of beauty that pretty adequately accounts for our experience of it, but it doesn't account for what 
seems to be producing that experience. The Christian Platonist tradition tells us that beauty is a property of being. That beauty, therefore, in, re in being is one with truth and goodness. And that when we encounter the beautiful, we're actually seeing a first scintilla, a first showing forth of being's capacity to give itself to our mind, to be known and to be known in itself, as well as within the total order that Plato called the cosmos and that we Christians call creation. All of this Kant has surrendered in order to try to carve out a little preserve for our occasional contemplation of a beautiful painting or a beautiful sunset. That strikes me as a very high price to pay. So there's the philosophical problem. But I want to spend most of my time this evening talking about the more practical problem, which is what does this do to the artist? What does, where does this leave the artist who wants to make a beautiful thing, but wants to make a beautiful thing that generally reveals the world as it is? <coughs> a, a work of art that shows forth or discloses what it means to be real, what it means to be human, and also what it means to be a creature of God. Well, let me give you two quick anecdotes from literary history just to set up the three problems I want to go through with you tonight for uh, my own work as a uh, practicing poet. Here's the first story. Uh, most of you probably haven't heard of the fin de siècle English poet Lionel Johnson. He's his claim to fame, I'm afraid, is that he may have died falling off a bar stool. <laughs> not necessarily a bad way to go, but also not heroic. Um, but he was also a very talented poet. And he wrote, a po his, his best known poem is one called The Dark Angel. Now to read this poem and to know anything about Lionel Johnson's life is to know that the dark angel is just what he sounds like. He's the devil. And it's and the poem is about Johnson's inability to take joy in the genuinely beautiful because the, the temptations of the devil keep corrupting what should be wholly beautiful and make it, uh, uh, they, they sunder it and soil it. So he talks about music being silver in itself, but no sooner does he begin to hear silver music than it, becomes, it comes to burn with a sultry fire, is his language. So Johnson's poem, The Dark Angel, is a poem about the struggle with sin and temptation. Well, Johnson's contemporary and one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, W.B. Yeats, read this poem and he said, no, 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 this is no Christian poem. The dark angel is the spirit of poetry and this is a poem about the poet wrestling with his inspiration, with his muse. Now, W.B. Yeats can misread the poem any way he wants. I have, won't hold it against him. But I do start to get irritated when literary critics buy in. Uh, and so uh, the Yale uh, literary scholar, Harold Bloom, in his book on Yeats, he says, Lionel Johnson's poem, as soon as you stop thinking of the Christianity about it and just think about it as about the nature of art itself, that is to say you make it autonomous, he says, it suddenly becomes a much better poem. And the fact that Yeats couldn't read the poem the way it was intended to be written as a Christian devotional poem but read it as about art's own assertion as an autonomous god, that makes, says Bloom, that makes Yeats a better poet. 
So Yeats is, becomes a better poet precisely because he's the one who's read the poem in an impoverished way that actually cuts it off from the rest of reality. Let me give you one other anecdote uh, of a similar kind. I may need to refer to my notes for this because uh, the poem's written down. Um, the romantic poet, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, over the course of his lifetime became a great admirer of the 17th century uh, Anglican divine and poet George Herbert. Coleridge writes in one of his notebooks that when he first read uh, Herbert's book of poetry, The Church or The Temple, and when he heard about the size of the editions in which this book was being printed, he couldn't believe his eyes. 20,000 copies in 17th century England is a lot of books. In fact, it's a lot of books now. Um, I shudder to think. Uh, <laughs> um, and yet, Her uh, Coleridge thought, how can this be? Herbert's poetry is homely and humble. It's all about a poor country parson who loves God but knows that he's failing to serve him well. About a country parson who loves God and is waiting for his reward, but the reward does not come. It's a poem, it's a poetry, in other words, that's primarily one of a Christian wrangling with God and with his own failings as a person. So Coleridge looked at these poems and he looked at the sales figures and it just did not compute for him because he thought, how can a poetry so consumed with the minutia of the moral life have captured the imagination of thousands of Englishmen? When, no doubt, he's thinking, my book of poems has only sold 400 copies. <laughs> well, this is Coleridge ref uh, reflecting back on many years of acquaintance with Herbert. By the time he writes this, he realizes that he has fallen in love with Herbert, and it's because his own entrance into uh, life has, or his journey through life has taken him from being a secular uh, philosopher and poet to being actually a very devout Christian. And the deeper he enters into the Christian life, the more sense uh, Herbert's poetry makes to him. It reminds me of the Mark Twain anecdote. Um, you know, my old man used to tell me so many things that were all wrong. But I've noticed in recent years he's starting to learn, you know, <laughs> as I get older. Uh, but so this is how, how it was for, for Coleridge. The more he grew into Herbert's poetry, the more he began to see that Christianity as a way of life was finding a beautiful expression within it. And the more important those poems became for him. But what is this problem? Is it the problem of Coleridge's immaturity? Maybe. But I think it's more a problem of uh, our living under the regime, as it were, of these two modes of secularism. It was hard for Coleridge to grapple with a poetry that so clearly had didactic or moral designs upon him. It was hard for Herbert, excuse me, for Coleridge to grapple with a poetry um, that took as its starting premise the assumption that our life in this natural world is to be suffused in all ways and shapes by the supernatural grace and commands of God. Of God. And so as he matured and came to appreciate Herbert, one can't help but suspect that Coleridge also saw himself as maturing out of his conception of art as a god unto itself. Well, when I... 
first thought I should write a religious poem, I was more or less in the position of the young Coleridge. I just didn't have it, feel I had any resources as to go about it. And so uh, I looked in my mind at the books I had read, at the authors who had influenced me, and I had very few resources that could allow me or that would help me to represent in verse um, what I wanted to write about was the, the struggle for belief. But when I looked at examples I, uh, for precedent, for conventions to draw upon, I saw the writings of James Joyce, where, um, but there I saw that the, um, the real wrangling with faith and unbelief that happens in Joyce's fictions are usually personified or voiced through the young characters, children. If you look at Joyce's first book of short stories, for instance, the most theologically powerful book or, or story is the first one, The Sisters, about a young boy going to see, uh, to, to awake for a priest. It's a wonderful story. I thought also of Joyce's countryman, uh, the Nobel poet Seamus Heaney, and how his first book of poems was one called Death of a Naturalist. That's all, you might say, in scare quotes. The naturalist is young Seamus Heaney slopping about the bogs of Northern Ireland and finding frog spawn and being horrified that nature's you know, red in tooth and claw, as the utilitarians used to say. And so the death of a naturalist is really the disenchantment of a boy realizing that the world is not as, as beautiful and pretty a place as he once took it to be. These were the only resources that, you know, that really leapt to mind, and I knew they weren't adequate. Because what they seem to suggest is that if you're going to write about the encounter with evil, the, the difference between good and evil, if you're going to write about faith and doubt, then it seems as if those things are most plausible only in the psychology of a child. That strike me as naive because here I was thinking about these things when I was in my early 20s. But I did what I could. And so I wrote a poem. It's in three uh, parts. And it's called Father Max Wake. And I want to read that for you now. As I said, it's in three short parts. And the first one is just called St. Thomas Aquinas Church, 1987. Death found an up, him upright in his chair, eyes shut. He had retired a pair of years back, having forgotten at the altar to recite the creed, or skipped again some other part that left us staring with mouths full of prayer, for which he'd left no room. The church he built in the brute modern style of a time when everyone knew the face of Pius XII and Paul VI was newly vilified, projected a wall of stained glass with Christ, scientist, scholar, artist, engineer, radiant in mosaic. The rising light would hit upon the cut shards, beaming inward a sanctified view of American progress upon the sanctuary. All that went on without him. It wasn't necessity 
or failure that weighed his death with sorrow. Just the way those things, more permanent than us, retain their meaning only in terms of what must pass. And with the loss of memory, even that passes. Open casket. I saw him sleep at the front of the church. Had someone thought to smear a greasy thumb upon his forehead, say the prayer, and give him that last sacrament before his body calmed itself down to nothing? All the years of cold baptismal dunking, children crowding toward the confessional or to communion, the blaring organ and stone font's blunt head, the dark three-chambered box with lights installed beneath his graven name, solemnities of wedding vows, new priests' first masses after ordination. How many had he seen before him from the altar, before him in the pews? And now this one, who had seen all, seen through the darkness of the sacraments, was seen and still and silent in a box. The violence of resurrection. I saw his folded hands upon the cross, about the knuckles twined a rosary, and Scottish plaid draped over the oak box as if to cover his cold legs. But I was twelve, a little more, and had been led to church that night and told to kneel, keep hushed, when I could hardly bear to sit a minute without a sharp tug on my mother's skirt and asking, could we leave? My friends were out playing and looked on absence as defection. It was, in any case, not Sunday or a holy day, but just another day. Father Mac did not frighten me, but my father did, and his look was all it took to get my fingers knotted in reluctant prayer. So I prayed to go outside, to shed the clip-on tie, the navy slacks, the short-sleeved dress shirt that was my uniform for school and so was doubly inappropriate in this, the freest of the summer months, the longest days cut short by this long wake. The casket lay a dozen feet before me. I pressed my mouth against the humid lacquer thick on the pew, and with that stealing cowardice Augustine tells us of, I drove my bike key into the wood as if to carve and scrape insignia of my envy and impatience, my boredom, bitterness, and fresh despair. And when my parents didn't rise, and when some young priest led us in a tedious hymn, I prayed, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in you, and waited for the chance to file out into the yellow twilight and never to come in that church again. Now in the foyer, hangs a bronze relief of Father Mac above a cross of keys. And those key stabs I made may still be scarred in the pew's aging wood, a seeming accident that only I can read in memory, signs of a last attack before defeat. So there's a poem that stages all of this in the context of childhood, though I think it gets at a few things that are worth thinking about. And as much as I, you know, I, I like the poem, I, I couldn't help but feel 
after I'd written it. Again, that I hadn't done justice to what I was talking about precisely because I felt compelled to locate these questions of faith and doubt in this context of childhood. It almost seemed too easy. It seemed too much like what I wanted to say about the nature of God was being sort of contrived and pulled back uh, by that jealous god of art until it was satisfied that what we had was a poem and not something else. Um, I sometimes wonder if that kind of representation really gives a poet like Herbert his due. Who didn't feel compelled to locate his own moral wrestling with God in the setting of a child, but put it just where most of us would put it, which is into his own daily life. So this problem of representing religious experience is the one that in what time remains with me, I just want to take you through three short problems that I've had to, to, to contend with in my own thinking about art and my own trying to write an occasional decent poem. What I'm going to do is, um, is stage these, these three problems by just briefly quoting um, from writers who have influenced me and then sharing with you a little bit about how I work through the problems that their quotations suggest. So I see T.S. Eliot as one of the most important figures uh, in 20th century letters precisely because he appreciated that art was art and religion was religion, but wasn't satisfied with that distinction. He wanted to find a new way to write uh, with aesthetic integrity that nonetheless showed itself explicitly and implicitly, I suppose, as open to the divine. And this, he thought, was something that every serious artist had to take up, this challenge. In his own practice was to try to unite the divine and the aesthetic by way of what I'll call in a few minutes wit, W-I-T. Um, that is to say the refined, associative, and constructive intellect. Over the many years after e. Eliot's conversion, he returned to this problem repeatedly, and rightly so, because he was dealing, struggling with it in his own poetry. In his essay, Religion and Literature, he praised the James Joyce I mentioned earlier as being almost unique in understanding how to write plausibly about the world with a Christian imagination. Most poets of his day, in contrast, had chosen either the world or the Christian imagination. He framed this choice thus, in language that echoes um, what we might find in Coleridge's notebooks. Most educated readers are accustomed to judging, Eliot says, that the religious poet is not a poet who is treating of the whole subject matter of poetry in a religious spirit, but a poet who's dealing with only a confined part of this subject matter, who's leaving out what men consider their major passions and thereby confessing his ignorance of them. The religious poet may be a poet, but that extra aesthetic interest in Kant's terms of making devotion, something moral, articulate, renders the aesthetic form secondary. This in turn leads us to greet the materials of that poetry, suggests Eliot, 
as in some sense naive. The extra aesthetic can only be admitted if we're willing to concede that it's also the sub aesthetic. Now this sometimes strikes me when I read a religious poem or sing a contemporary hymn. The language seems at a remove from real life, as if we had to forget about some portion of what we had lived or known in order to create a preserve where devotion can be expressed in an unqualified voice. Devotional poetry appears as a safe little world apart, rather than as a fullness of expression regarding the most important realities we may know, and which should inform the most quotidian details of our lives and make them intelligible to us. It was this problem, just this one, as Eliot phrased it, that I, know, I now know I was wrestling with when I was trying to articulate this problem of art as a jealous god years ago. Well, I take some consolation that it took T.S. Eliot a long time to figure out how to address the matter. In the first poems he wrote after his conversion to Christianity, the aerial poems, uh, Journey of the Magi being the best known of them, he's able to give his poetic scenario, uh, sorry, his poem, a scenario of Christian epiphany. But his mind, uh, but um, he's only able to do it when he stages this encounter of the Magi with the infant Christ in a context of tragedy. It's a very sad poem, Journey of the Magi. Intellectual belief is attained with fatalistic certitude and only at the concession of a pathos of feeling. When I thought it was time to write a devotional poem, I didn't have the guts to try an original one the way Eliot did, so I fell back on an age-old recommendation of the poet Ezra Pound, which is that if you don't think you can write a good poem on your own, translate somebody else's. <laughs> so I decided to translate one by the French poet uh, Raissa Maritain, the wife of the great French philosopher Jacques Maritain. Her sensibility also conceived, like Eliot's, of religious conversion as having tragic elements within it. And yet it's able to express a genuine devotion that Eliot's poetry seldom does. So here is a poem of hers called De Profundis, um, which I translated some years ago. God, oh my God, the space between us I cannot endure Reveal to me that pilgrimage, both absolute and pure, that pathway without wreckage of my soul into your heart, unlike those men charred on the earth in measurable parts. My soul is plucked and poor and feels the wound of everything in its unspeakable slap and with its all-too-human ring. Pain ravished me of my first years, and now I'm just a ghost that goes out moaning for its marrow, along roads hard and narrow that hope has forced on it with tears. In justice, my eyes rise toward you beneath a loneliness whose shadows, dark as headstones, bloodied altars, weigh and press. How can I come to you beyond the obscurity of signs to meet in flesh the light of your word without going blind? All that is said of you is sacrilege, and what you say yourself in our tongue hides in mottled deeps of mystery. For while you shroud yourself in speaking darkness or withdraw, the world you fashion coruscates with stars that overawe. 
and the abyss in which you set them terrifies my soul. From those abyssal depths I cry to you, my God, my goal. So this is a translation, and I set it right in the middle of a sequence of poems called uh, La, Rochefoucauld, La Rochefoucauld's Ghost, um, which is the middle section of, of my book of poems, Some Permanent Things. It's 21 poems that directly reflect on the relationship of the domain of art, the secular world, or the world of nature, and, um, and the vision of God and the claims of the divine. The poems are set up dialectically. That is to say, one poem will sort of give voice to one position, and another one will give it the contrary. And then they'll also sometimes piggyback on one another, the translation of one French poet coupled with an original poem by me. And you know, I don't want to spend this whole night accusing myself of cowardice, but I saw the kind of artistic advantage here. Because <laughs> what if, if, um, if Paul Lake, the editor of First Things magazine, says to you, that Raiz Ameritan poem is a really lousy poem, which he did, you can just reply, as I did, well, you know, it's to be printed in the context of a much larger sequence. It's very serious. <laughs> Uh, and so I did. Um, uh, you know, if you don't like that poem, I've, you know, it's like Groucho Marx. You know, you don't like my principles. I've got others. Uh, you, know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't like this poem. I've got twenty others in the sequence. Right? There's one that's going to hit you. Um, so, but, but I needed to put up all of this pillowing around myself, this buffering around myself, in order to just make that poem the poem it was supposed to be, which was a prayer to God. Um, I. As soon as I wrote it, I thought, I think, I think I'm free. And so I, a couple days later, I wrote a lyric that follows it in the sequence called And Beat Upon This High Cloud of Unknowing. Its title comes from the great late, English, uh, late medieval English mystical work, The Cloud of Unknowing. Um, and it's not a first-person lyric the way Reza Maritans is. It's more of, um, of an allegorical vision. But it seemed like it was finally getting somewhere. Here's how it goes. After a hard trek up loose rocks, I found myself not far below the peak, chest gasping and staggering on my legs. The fog had swallowed the path behind. My memory was hollow, where your and others' names belonged, where last spring's acanthus bloom perdured. I fell to the ground. I may have slept an hour, I don't know, but when my eyes turned upward, they felt pressed by the weight of a cloud that blotted all, enshrouded all in that strange dark. I called into the raveling air. My sight grew less the more I strained for light, while I struck blow on blow against the black whose insubstantial vault resonated like a drum of steel. You'd not have recognized my voice. It cried, just let me in, I beg you, or I'll die. Just let me in. And then a peal of thunder snuffed it out. The circumstantial evidence is plain. I woke with knuckles bleeding, my throat dried to a reed, my head concussed. But just the same, the glowering cloud I'd fought was buried deeper in me than all thought. My blind and breathless trail, an outward husk, and every fist, the self itself exceeding. I just realized as I was reading that poem to you that it's in the same six-line uh, iambic pentameter stanza as one of George Herbert's best poems, Church Monuments. So. I guess this whole talk is a sort of apology to George Herbert. 
I want to share one more effort at writing a poetry of devotion that feels like it is respectful of the legitimate claims of this jealous god of art, but actually doesn't merely cower before them. Um, a number of years ago, three to be actually, uh, I decided I spent the summer writing a Stations of the Cross. Um, the poems, all 14 of them, are just one for each of the 14 stations that Catholics pray in the rite of the stations uh, in church during Lent. And they're in the same uh, stanzaic form as the medieval Latin, or late, uh, late antique Latin poem, Stabat Mater. Um, if you have ever been to the Stations of the Cross, you probably sang verses from the Stabat Mater uh, at, at the end of each station. Am I right? right. So this is, this is how it would go. Stabat Mater Dolorosa Justa crucem lacrimosa, dom pendebat filius. So we would do that at the end of each station. Then the altar boys would move the cross forward one, and we'd do our next prayer. That's how the Stations of the Cross works. So I did 14 poems in that stanza. Um, I'm not going to sing them all for you now. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I just want to share one with you. It was the first one to be published, uh, actually, in... First Things Magazine, so same guy who didn't like the race of Marathon too much. Um, uh, it's the 11th station, Jesus is Nailed to the Cross. For boys who pull the wings off beetles or prick their sisters' backs with needles, they spread his hand to take the nail. For we who meet in dark motels to clasp a stranger to ourselves, his palm split as they drove the nail. You, the one who frisked through her purse when she stepped out to find the nurse, for you they placed a second nail. While I got drunk this afternoon, a child's skull was torn from the womb, its cries rung in the hammered nail. This whole world is a mound of skulls. We like it so, lest days grow dull. Watch them brace his feet for the nail, for us who keep our kitchens clean, who'd never have ourselves thought mean, we had them drive the final nail and set him hanging, his fist bleeding, while we went shopping, cruising, feeding, and in his shadow pared our nails. So with that Stations of the Cross, I hope I'm done trying to do devotional poetry. I think I'm I think I've satisfied myself in at least that dimension of things. Um, the next problem I want to mention, I'll have to treat a little bit more briefly, and it's on the difficulty of representing um, divine experience, the encounter with the absolute that is God. Uh, my particular hero in this world is a California poet and critic named Ivor Winters. He's a wonderful poet an engaging critic. And in his essay on uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick in his great book In Defense of Reason, he says the following, and he's thinking of Moby Dick, the sea, the white whale, as an allegory. The land is the land of the known. The sea as the great abyss of the absolute that can swallow you up. Winters writes, the relationship of man to the known and the half-known is not a simple and static one. 
he cannot merely stay on land or he will perish of imperception, but must venture on the sea without losing his relationship to the land. We have in brief the relationship of principle to perception, or in other words, the problem of judgment. As Winters puts it here, a poetry that merely explores the terrain that we all already have so much in common that it's hardly worth talking about would be predictably dull. It would lack in perception regarding what is most final and important in human life. But it's also possible for poetry to become merely obscure, not so much to seem naive the way Coleridge found Herbert at first, uh, but to take as its subject aspects of reality that are entirely private and finally incommunicable, a lapse into what Winters and the philosopher George Santayana would condemn as a kind of monistic mysticism, unsuitable for poetic representation. Earlier in the same volume from which I just quoted, Winters offers something like a solution to this problem of the obvious and the obscure, writing of two apparently opposed poets, that same divine George Herbert I've been telling you about, and also the atheistic Thomas Hardy, he insists, as he puts it, the fundamental concepts of morality are common to intelligent men regardless of theological orientation. He then establishes a limit to representation by insisting that the absolute, by which he means God, is in its nature inscrutable except as stimulus to moral speculation. We can assume most of the moral concerns of the Catholic or Christian writers such as Herbert will be shared by others, presuming they are intelligent, says Winters, in apparent contradiction of some of Coleridge's worries. But if you turn to a poem I just mentioned, Herbert's great poem, Church Monuments, which was by far Ivor Winters' favorite, you'll see that Winters kind of had a point. The reckoning with mortality and death uh, is a universal among the intelligent, because with taxes it is certain. Herbert's poem presumes the flesh will die and that the soul must contemplate that loss in preparation for death and judgment. It leaves most of what lies beyond that judgment inscrutable, for within the poem, anyhow, it's precisely death that's largely the undiscovered country, and even for the Christian, we would acknowledge that, and it causes um, us all to share, therefore, in the fact of our mortality as a subject worthy of meditation by every person, not just the one who has a particular theological vision of its significance. Now, Winters was no Christian, though he was a great admirer of the theologian Thomas Aquinas, and a follower of his of sorts. But his poems do, remarkably, closely resemble George Herbert's poems and those of Herbert's opposite, as it were, Thomas Hardy. They share a kind of common moral terrain. So Winters must have been right about this, that there's some way that you can write about what is of absolute and immediate concern to the Christian that will also, if justly represented and phrased, be of immediate and complete concern to the non-Christian as well. He even celebrates the poetry of Emily Dickinson's because many of Dickinson's superficially most silly but down deep most profound poems are sort of stagings of the afterlife. Many of you will know this poem from elementary school or high school, Because I Could Not Stop for Death, He Kindly Stopped for Me. Right? And young Miss Dickinson gets into the carriage with death and rides off with two horses toward eternity. Winters loved this poem, 
did he think she was, he could have accused her, I guess we might say, of being silly because here she is fantasizing about what the experience of death looks like in a way that she couldn't actually know. But as far as Winters was concerned, that kind of speculative play that she was doing there was absolutely essential because we have to grapple with death. And if we don't have a literal knowledge of it, then we could do worse than imagine it as you know, death with a horse and four, or carriage and four, right? Um, so what Winters suggests is on the one hand, we have a certain, the poet has a certain responsibility to make what he writes intelligible to everyone who might possibly read the poem. On the other hand, it's still possible, having made that concession to people who only may, as it were, share your aesthetic concerns, uh, it's still possible to enter into the deep mystery of the absolute, of the divine. Now, in that same sequence of poems, La Rochefoucauld's Ghost, at one point, because it's such a little dialectical sequence, at one point I sort of descend into a series of witty, very humanistic poems in that sort of secular sense, as in trying to have good moral sense uh, without too much concern for the absolute. And my favorite of the poems is a long one, don't worry, I won't read the whole thing, um, that begins with two sort of non-civilinelles that take witty maxims from uh, the 17th century French wit La Rochefoucauld. Uh, If you don't recognize that name, you know at least a few of his zingers. He's the one who he's the guy who came up with the uh, the saying, for instance, that revenge is a dish best served cold. Um, he's very good. Uh, so um, I, in fact, the only reason I know of him is because when I was learning French, I was taught that if I wanted to learn style, I had to learn my Rochefoucauld. So so I had a series of villanelles that took ep- maxims from his book of Maxime and and juxtaposed them, staggering down the page. Uh, in, in different settings. And then, um, and then I, at the end of the poem, I offer an envoy, that is to say a, poem, a little poem to send off the two that I've just written. The poem as a whole is called Maxims for Samuel Sewell. Some of you will recognize that name. Samuel Sewell was one of the ministers and judges in the Salem witch trials, and he was also the first one to reach the conclusion that they had erred. Um, and confessed his wrong. And so uh, these are maxims for Samuel Sewell because it's exploring what is this rational domain that we can all have in common with others um, that, amongst other things, may allow us to adjudicate justly before we burn someone. Here's, here's, here's just the, uh, the envoy to that poem. My eyes have fallen from eternity to idle in that wit. Civility can teach a man to know with other men the light tread of the pithy through the den. Since Sewell from his pulpit confessed his wrong in riling Salem's blistering zealous throng to violence, one's dismayed, put off at best, by Gnostic nostrums from a haughty chest. So let us savor common sense's cream and leave dense curds for cloistered monks to dream. It was such dreaming, after all, they say, that got the witches burned, the heretics flayed. Although we once asked much from reason's prodigies, we're better off with smartly worded modesties. If they seem trifling, they are human themes. At least, so take them thus, these terse maxims. So 
this is not where I wanted to stay. It was rather, I wanted to explore what would just a, a genuinely humanistic poetry after the sort of style of the 18th century look like before returning to this question of how, therefore, can I use these poetic conventions to, uh, to give some representation to the divine. I'm going to share one last problem with you. And we all know C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy. The title of this little section is, It's Kind of Hard to Be Surprised by Joy. Um, the, uh, the last quotation I offered from Eliot um, about devotional poetry might suggest that it comes, um, that when it comes to the admittance of the divine to a work of art, um, it, it actually destroys the integrity of the art as art. He would proceed to meditate on this for a long time. Why should that be? Why, for instance, thinks Eliot to himself, when I write this poem, Journey of the Magi, does this seem like a real poem? It's about the birth of our God, and yet it's cast as a tragedy. Is it just that hint of sadness to it that makes somebody take it seriously, whereas if it were just a pure poem of joy, like Charles Williams' ballad about the epiphany, um, which is a a beautiful poem, um, would people not take it as seriously? So in his long essay on Dante, thinking specifically of Dante's Paradiso, where our wayfarer Dante, having journeyed through hell and purgatory, has at long last arrived at heaven's heaven, right? the realms of light. And Eliot, thinking of these lines, says this will be hard for most readers because we have difficulty taking seriously, difficulty appreciating a poetry of supernatural joy. Here's what he says. It's a gradual matter of adjustment of our vision. We have, whether we know it or not, a prejudice against beatitude as material for poetry. The 18th and 19th centuries knew nothing of it. Even Shelley, who knew Dante so well, was able to announce the proposition that our sweetest songs are those which sing of saddest thought. And this from the same essay. It is apparently easier to accept damnation as poetic material than purgation or beatitude. Less is involved that is strange to the modern mind. Now, there's surely something witty there, right? Because he's telling you that most of our modern minds are infernos. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think this is, this is a real problem. And in fact, if you look back just a few decades earlier than Immanuel Kant writing on aesthetic autonomy at the end of the 18th century, you'll see right in the middle of the 18th century, a brilliant young Irishman named Edmund Burke writing, I think he was 17, writing a treatise on the sublime and the beautiful. And the book is a whole psychology of sensation. And one of the claims that Burke makes is that pain is more widely shared than joy. So if you share your pain, you're likely to be, there will be a greater number of people who can sympathize with you than if you share your joy. I don't know if that's true about human beings in general, but it's Burke's theory, and it seems to have caught on with the poets. That's why when we think of a poet, we think of a man in a blank, a black uh, turtleneck and a beret saying, what is life? (laughs) Eliot had difficulty writing a poetry of joy. In fact, in his great poem about his Christian conversion, Ash Wednesday, he says the following, consequently, I rejoice. Good. Having to construct something upon which to rejoice. Not as good. Right? He, he, 
He's just not sure how he can write a poem that would just be a pure expression of the adulation of discovering that there's a God who died on the cross and has saved him by his blood. Well, um, I didn't need Eliot's troubles to hector me. I, as I think I mentioned to some of you earlier today, I had my parents reading my published poems when they were first appearing and say, why are these all so depressing? So, <laughs> and so it didn't take too long uh, for me to say, yeah, why are they so depressing? What's wrong with supernatural joy? People like it. Um, and so uh, I didn't put too much effort into thinking about this. I didn't have a chance. Um, I had promised uh, my then fiance and now my wife that for our wedding day, I would have a sonnet prepared for the wedding. And so uh, I then proceeded to make no progress on this for the next three months. <laughs> two, two nights before the wedding, as I'm lying for the first time ever in the bed that will become our marriage bed, I wake up early in the morning sit up, and I already have four lines of a sonnet in my head. I don't know where it came from. I, it just begins, though neither young nor old, nor full of wine, not blind exactly, though my sight was poor, I crouched, a beggar, waiting for a sign so obvious the dead could not ignore. Well, I hopped up, got the notebook, wrote that down, and then in five minutes flat, I finished the rest of it, and I went back to sleep. <laughs> A flaneur, so much as is possible, in a despoiled city such as this. Amid the listless crowd, I casually strolled, searching for a stare not quite purposeless. A bibliographic recluse in his room, I mused, what word could make me close my book? Some old west drunk passed out by the spittoon. What patient face could cure me with a look? Then you came, sign stare, cure, and word, and brought a new life where none was, but one was sought. So that was off to the printer just in time. Um, and it, and I, think it, I think it's a poem of unambiguous joy. I mean, who, we're all Old West drunks at some point, <laughs> and we do get woken up, and it's good if we can be woken up by Hillary Brianna Wilson. Um, <laughs> Uh, so um, I think what I'll, I, I want to say one word about, one f further word about that poem. Um, I mentioned in the first poem I read to you, the Father Mac poem, how I had to fall back upon poetic conventions to try to figure out how to write something. And as I understand all the arts, and certainly the art of poetry, every act of writing is this falling back on resources. The, the activity of making something new consists merely of taking things that already exist and slightly rearranging them and putting them in new combinations. And then what's genuinely new supervenes upon all that's old. And so I wasn't blaming myself for falling back on conventions. I was holding myself accountable for not having at my fingertips conventions that were adequate to the subject matter. In this poem, um, it's a poem very dear to my heart. It's very closely modeled on the... Um, the rhetorical forms of the 16th century sonnet, where each four-line stanza um, is used to advance one part of the argument, and then it culminates uh, in the final couplet. In this case, then you came, signed, stare, cure, and word, and brought a new life where none was, but one was sought. Now, those of you who know the English poetic tradition, the only fixed form 
that, um, that has really entered into common currency is the sonnet. Uh, it's such a perfectly designed form. In 14 lines, you can fit approximately 100 words into it. You can advance and complete a, a rigorous logical argument uh, in, in elegant, uh, at an elegant pace. But the fixed form that's known to be most challenging is a 13th century form called the Sestina. Uh, in my younger years, when I knew nothing, I guess, I used to say it was really foolish for poets to spend any time writing sestinas because it's a very complicated form. It involves repeating the same six words at the end of each hendecasyllabic line and then repeating them in a fixed, predetermined order, down six stanzas, and then coupling them together in the final three-line envoy. Uh, so it's a difficult poem, and the result is very likely to sound like somebody who's trying to get the same six words to reappear six or seven times <laughs> in a poem, and so it ends up sounding kind of like an exercise, which is why so many of the best-known poets, when they publish the Sestina, guess what they call it? Sestina. Right? As in, I did this. Never again. Um, well, I had just finished reviewing a book that had a whole chapter on the contemporary Sestina, and, and each time I felt like a grammar school teacher. Terrible, terrible, terrible. The Sestinas that were being reprinted in this chapter on Sestinas, none of them were actually Sestinas. The, the rules of the form are very particular. Now, as I said, from my youth, I had been opposed to this poet, poetic form altogether, but I thought if you're going to do it, at least do it right. Well, I was getting on my high critical horse, sitting in a small room in South Bend, Indiana. Um, no doubt, my then six-month-year-old daughter, Livia Grace, crying behind me, and her clothes and various things scattered around the office, which I shared. It was her bedroom, my office, when she let me use it. And I said, I'm going to do a Sestina correctly. I'm going to respect all of the Italian conventions, including the Hendeka syllabic line, so that each line ends with a falling rhythm, because that's just how it Italy is, right? It always ends with a fall. So here is a prayer for Lydia Grace. There's little room left in this house for poetry or in this world for any lasting language. The managers and sales reps in the office who've ticketed their holidays are childless and looking toward five days of sun and liquor. They care for neither old books nor a young daughter. But somehow near me sleeps an infant daughter who grows still to the cradle sounds of poetry. Eyelids dropped in the promise of sleep's liquor. It charms her, yet she knows nothing of language. Nor did I, in a way, when I was childless, preoccupied with filling another office than fatherhood. Now, crowded in my office, a crib and chest of pink drawers for my daughter remind me that this empty room sat childless except for those ink-lettered sheets of poetry when child was just a word and my child language, which I would write and read at night with liquor. Now she's born, we have little time for liquor, and my desk crammed in a corner of the office, my papers lost beneath the brighter language of cardboard-colored alphabets for my daughter. I'm sure I wrote a different kind of poetry when all my hours were filled though I was childless. The TV news shows that, because they're childless, exercise, and shun cigarettes and liquor, modern consumers live a life of poetry. 
controlled and self-absorbed as fits the office of sonnets or sestinas, their only daughter an iPod or such ephemeral techno-language. I pray my daughter speak another language, that in the richest sense you not be childless, your every act a kind of lasting daughter more beautiful than bored clerks at their liquor. Though they find no room for it at the office, may you crowd your small corridors with poetry. My daughter's teething needs her gums rubbed with liquor, which stops my language, calls me from my office. I go. May I have more of this child, less poetry. Well, you've had a great deal of me already this evening, and I don't want to impose upon your time. I've shared with you these three problems, and I hope they've been a little bit illuminating about the challenges that confront you when trying to deal with that jealous god of art, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Thanks for your time. Yes. I think Kant's really the, the cornerstone and the first to articulate um, many of these problems, the problems of secularity. Um, so in one sense, I disagree with you, and I think it goes back farther. But uh, if you want to stick around for the two-hour version of this, I, I, <laughs> I've got a whole historical narrative on how aesthetic theory develops after Kant. And I think you're quite right that uh, in, in the early 20th century modernism is a very diverse or very various phenomenon. Um, but the chief strains of it uh, are interested, as you put it, in, in the perspectival and the and the fluctu and the fluctuating and the and the relative. And so um, so they do indeed tend to collapse everything even further, if that were possible, into your own secular psyche or subjectivity uh, after the fashion of Kant, or really taking Kant to a further radical extreme. Um, but I think, I mentioned Eliot so often in the talk, I think within the development of aesthetic theories out of Kant, there is a strain that's quite beautiful and quite promising that I call the ontological strain. And it's those who accept some of the premises that art is its own thing, it's not something else. It's not fully, we haven't understood what it means for a poem to be a Virgil's Aeneid, for instance, uh, to be Virgil's Aeneid when we say, oh, it's propaganda for the Roman Empire. So there's, some, there's something about the beautiful work that because of its beauty, it transcends uh, most of the definitions we try to put upon it. Uh, those people who accept this, they nonetheless seek, sought um, to reconnect um, the kind of revelation that art makes possible, that artistic representation makes possible, with being. 
So they're, they're ontological in that sense. They're trying to reconnect art with being. And I think uh, it's, it's remarkable. I, I read a few years ago a history of modernism by, uh, by Peter Gay. He says, uh, modernism's all about self-expression. And I thought, who are you reading, Mr. Gay? Because I don't read any of those people. I read the ones who, who, who say things like, uh, poetry is not a release of emotion, it's an escape from emotion, which is T.S. Eliot. Um, so, uh, so I don't know who he's talking about. Why well, I, mean, I do, but they're they're not the modernists who most interest me. But there's a, a strong and I think a, and indeed to be recommended strain of modernist thought, including Eliot, Ivor Winters, Alan Tate, other modernist literary modernist poets and literary critics, um, who who seek to broaden the nature of the aesthetic realm such that it can reattain the classical vision of beauty as a property. But they're a minority uh, within the larger phenomenon. I agree. Yes. Yeah, I've been thinking about what you said about um, Carol Bloom's comment on Gates's re yeah. uh, setting of Lionel Johnson's poem, Fruity mm-hmm. Archangel. It, it seems like when he says it's a better poem, there's something going on that when you read it as a metaphor or some sort of, I don't know, cognitive, it becomes more, maybe it does become more intellectually interesting mm-hmm. in a certain sense. The aspect of metaphor changes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about, you know, secular poets have all of the resources of religious imagery and tradition to draw on as metaphor yes. for other things, uh-huh. but it's different for the believing poet in a sense because it, it could use its tradition as metaphor, uh-huh. but it's not the same mm-hmm. sort of thing. You know what I'm I do. I mean, there, yeah. there are two powerful things there. One is that uh, maybe I finally disagree with Bloom on that judgment. Uh, but certainly, instinctively, I would, I'm sure when I first read this line, I said, yeah, that makes sense. There, there is, this is which launched the thousand ships that is uh, the meditations I'm sharing with you tonight, that, um, that for all of the reasons that I just explained that I think Kant is wrong, he's pointing out that there is something like autonomy in the work of fine art. Um, and these ontologists that I was just telling you about, I think they actually give us resources to take what may be true in what Kant says and, and reinsert it into uh, a more authentic tradition of thinking about the nature of beauty. And what we would say then is that art's not autonomous, but that like all being, it has an integrity to itself. And, and every element of an ingenious technique in a work of art tends to remind us that this is some new thing that's come into the world, and that it's asserting its own existence and revealing its connection and the intelligibility of all existence through itself. Um, and and it's, you know, it's primarily through metaphor that we get most struck by that phenomenon. Um, and so if a metaphor is maybe a little too easily solved, as in Dark Angels is the devil, then it loses some interest precisely because it seems like the poem is reaching out less profoundly into the mystery of existence um, that we usually go to art to sort of contemplate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just a little thing. Well, you've spoken a lot about the old British, the British tradition of dealing with modernism, postmodernism, from Eliot. 
throw it out a little more eastern. What do you think the church book me was in this Catholic approach to well, mysticism and that rebuttal of postmodernism? Do you feel that that's a surrender, if you will, back into postmodernism, both in terms of his stylistic form and in his subject matter and his almost pantheistic prose? I, I'm undecided. My, my sense has long been that he's actually the way forward. Um, and I think I'll leave it at that, just because um, he, happily, I, I got to hear him read shortly before his death. And then soon thereafter, um, uh, his essay on poetry was published for the first time in English, which was a marvelous poem. And I just thought, this, this is what poetry should be doing. It was a real revelation for me. Um, uh, I was invited to give a lecture on English a couple years ago, and I said no, because I didn't have time to think hard enough about it to do it. And uh, I'm waiting for that invitation to come again, so I can actually have time to do it. Uh, but, oh, please, yes. So, since Kant, could you name some poets or particular poems that you think nailed joy? Nailed joy, right. Dante's pretty meaningful. And even for Dante, they come easy. Um, you mean that figure? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, well, just to get myself started, and this is such an easy answer that doesn't deserve your serious attention, but of course, Gerard and Hoffman, right? The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It's how like for I can recite the whole poem for you if you want to. Um, but yeah, Hopkins is a very obvious instance. Uh, in fact, the thing is, Hopkins' reputation has become overburdened because he's such an obvious case of the poetry of joy. Um, I will offer another easy answer for me personally because this poet's been so influential is, is the, um, uh, the now 90-year-old poet, uh, Helen Pinkerton Trimpey, whose collected poems was just published. Um, and a handful of her poems, and she didn't write that much, um, but in a handful full of her poems, I think, especially in a poem called Celebration, she achieves almost everything I think possible to do in a short poem. It's a, it's a brilliant metaphysical lyric that makes us conscious of existence itself as a gift from the divine, and it's a poem occasioned by baptism, so it's a real celebration of the new coming into being, the new life. Two is not very good. I can do better, but let me let me stop for now. I would think. You you spoke on T. S. Eliot earlier. Earlier, do you think um, in any ways um, does his struggle with um, you know um, does his struggle with like religion and poetry does it kind of culminate or what does it kind of culminate or how does it get resolved in, say, like, four quartets? Well, so four quartets, what a wonderful question. I'm writing a book on this. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the book I write is called Four Quartets in the Christian Platonist Tradition. And the argument of the book is not the usual scholarly monograph to say, let me show the Christian platonic origins of this poem. It's rather to say that this poem constitutes a new entry in the long contemplative tradition that, include, that I would include uh, begins with the dialogue of Plato, but includes um, Richard of St. Victor, St. John of the Cross, other medieval 
mystics, St. Augustine, and so on and so forth. And so that four quartets is more than a work of art. It's also an entrance into the spiritual tradition. So the short answer is that this poem resolves it by Eliot making a brilliantly conceived poem that's also a genuinely profound meditation of philosophical theology and spirituality. Um, the long -term, longer answer is only slightly longer, is this. After that, he stops writing poetry. <laughs> and what does he do? He begins writing verse plays, verse drama. I mean, he's already started by the time he writes and starts for uh, four quartets. Um, but that's where he continues. And the reason he felt so drawn to the drama is that is actually his deep-seated desire to overcome this idea of Kantian autonomy. He saw verse drama as, as essentially a didactic art form because it's performed before a community intended to represent that community's belief and also to challenge that community's belief to be more in conformity to the law of God, or with the law of God. And, um, and, and so he saw uh, verse drama as being a work of art, but also as unapologetically violating so many of the, the acts of secular, secularity that he saw modern poetry suffering from. Yes? So I come here as uh, so not really kind of verse in the world of art and poetry. So part of what you talked about that struck out to me was the, the difference in how secular art and poetry um, seems to kind of be art for the sake of being criticized by other artists, whereas um, more divine-inspired poetry is more as poetry as devotion is more likely to be read by a lay person who doesn't understand all the fine mechanics and just wants to a beautiful way to worship God. And I think that is a big influence. I just wanted to hear more uh, your thoughts. I, I'm going to be a, a tiny bit redundant on this, this last question because T.S. Eliot's yet again such a wonderful uh, reminder about, uh, or provides such wonderful grist for meditation on this. Um, Everyone who's read T.S. Eliot's Wasteland knows that T.S. Eliot wrote difficult poetry. And indeed, so difficult that it may be the last poem any person ever reads. <laughs> uh, a number of years ago, I went to speak at a small um, Christian college right outside Washington, D.C., called Patrick Henry College. And I, was gonna, I, I had been invited to give a lecture on T.S. Eliot. And I thought, why do a bunch of students want to hear from me about T.S. Eliot? Well, I show up, and it turns out they've all memorized T.S. Eliot's choruses from The Rock which are not Eliot's greatest poems, though they're quite wonderful. Uh, but they are unmistakably profound spiritual statements. Um, uh, the seventh one is a brilliant retelling of Paul's account of God's creation of the world, um, as in the, the account Paul gives in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, and it, it's, it's so marvelous. Uh, in, its, in its achievement. So it's, it's certainly a great work of art, but these students had not memorized it because they had heard that T.S. Eliot makes good poetry. They had heard that T.S. Eliot says profound things to Christians. And so they, they, they put his words into their mind and kept them there. Um, and and it, that was the inspiration originally for this, this book that I, I just mentioned, which is, well, if, if T.S. Eliot is changing people's spiritual lives, then we need to be able to account for these poems and what they do in that respect, and in fact, maybe help that happen more often. Um, so I agree. The, the case of George Herbert adds a little wrinkle to this puzzle, though. George Herbert's a contemporary of Isaac Watts. All of us seeing routinely 
Isaac Watts in, in church. We do sometimes hear George Herbert, very rarely. Um, Isaac Watt was a wonderful hymnist. George Herbert was a better poet. Um, and why, why that is, well, it might take us a while to, to flush things out, but, but, but surely there's a difference between those, those kinds of accomplishment and those kinds of service. Our, our, our sacred uh, music students can probably tell, tell us more than I can. 